This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. Did God curse the animals? Does God curse people? Genesis 3.14 indicates that God cursed the serpent, but what did the serpent do to deserve being cursed? And, And what's the whole point about the serpent crawling on the ground and eating dirt? And then there's Genesis 3.15, which talks about how the serpent striking the heel of the woman's seed will result in the seed crushing the serpent's head. What's all that about? And is this truly a prophecy about Jesus Christ? It's these sorts of questions we're going to look at today as we look at Genesis 3.14-15. In this episode of the One Verse Podcast, it's episode number 45. Before we get to that episode, though, I want to tell you that uh, another one of my books is on sale at Amazon. They have placed uh, one of my e-books, The Re-Justification of God, on 75% off. It's an e-book only, so it's usually $3.99, but uh, right now they have it priced at only $0.99. Cents. It's insane. And uh, lots of people have been discovering it recently, so I was happy to see this morning when I got up. Actually, The Re-Justification of God is number one in its category of Paul's letters and number one in the category of soteriology. So that was pretty exciting to see. But uh, today we're looking at some tough questions of Genesis 3. This book on Romans 9 looks at some tough questions out of Romans 9. For example, did God really harden Pharaoh's heart? And if so, what does that mean? Uh, Does God hate Esau? (laughs) What does that mean? Both of those statements are found in Romans 9. So I look at them in my book. It's not too long. It's about 80 pages. And uh, right now you can get it on Amazon for only 99 cents. Just go to Amazon and search for The Re-Justification of God. Uh, It's the one by J.D. Myers. There's another book there by a similar title. Make sure uh, you get the one by me. (laughs) Okay. With that in mind, let's begin our study today of Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So does God curse people? Is is cursing one of those things God tells us that we should not do, but he goes ahead and does it himself? I suppose that there are some things that um, God does which he prohibits us from doing. We've seen some of those, judging, for example, already in, in Genesis. But is cursing one of those things? Um Do we find in Genesis 3 that because Adam and Eve did the one thing God told them not to do, God cursed them in response? We're going to see, not so much in today's episode, but uh, as we go forward in future episodes, that that is not at all what we find. And uh, we'll be looking at that when we look at Genesis 3, 16 through 19 in future podcast episodes. But today, I just want to look at sort of the beginning of, of cursing in Scripture when we see... In Genesis 3, 14, this curse, this so-called curse that God pronounces upon the serpent. 
And uh, that's what we are going to be seeing in these two verses today, sort of introduces us to this concept of cursing, and then that will help us understand what God says to Eve, to the woman, in Genesis 3.16, and then what God says to the man, Adam, in Genesis 3.17-19, through 19, and then also what Cain says about this, his curse, the curse on him, uh, because of his murder of Abel in Genesis 4, and so on, moving moving forward into Scripture. So, um, we're looking just at the curse on the serpent, this, uh, this, this statement, these words, these consequences that God tells the serpent that will happen to him. Now, before we get to that, I do want to say, I've, I've hinted in a few podcast episodes in the past, that what we read here in Genesis 3, 14 and 15 actually has some background information, some background details from other ancient sources, such as uh, the Canaanite Adapa legend. I've spoken about that in a previous con- uh, a podcast episode. And in the Adapa legend, you remember, there was one of the gods, his name was Gazeta, and he appears in the form of a serpent. Uh, he was also called the Lord of the Protective Tree. So this god, the serpent form, the serpent-shaped god, uh, lived in a tree or, or oversaw the trees. That's sort of interesting, this, the, the, the connection there between the serpent and the tree. But Really, the most significant symbolism regarding the serpent, especially in light of what we read today in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, is found in the Egyptian myths, especially in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, some of the accounts found there. John Walton, uh, he's done a lot of research on this, and uh, he, in, in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible background commentary, he talks a lot about the Egyptian pyramid texts and uh, some of the parallels between what is written in those texts, which predate uh, even the life of Moses, uh, and since Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's courts, it's very likely he would have been taught about some of these pyramid texts, these, the, the, the texts in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Anyway, there's over 700 utterances and um, in, in the pyramid texts, and several dozen of these contain spells and curses on snakes to help the king or the pharaoh's progress through the underworld. So apparently there were these serpents and snakes that were trying to stop the king from making progress in the underworld after he died. And so these spells and utterances are to help protect the king. And among them, there are numerous curses or statements against serpents that they would crawl on their belly and that they would fall down, lie down, get down, crawl away, eat dust, and that sorts of things. Um, In one of them... Uh, For example, Pyramid Text 299 indicates uh, this statement. It says, uh, The sandal of Horus tramples the snake underfoot, and Horus has shattered the snake's mouth with the sole of his foot. That's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, Pyramid Text 378 says this, O snake on the sky, O centipede on earth, The sandal of Horus is what tramples the snake underfoot. It is dangerous for me, so I have trodden on you. Be wise about me, and I will not tread on you. For you are the mysterious and invisible one of whom the gods speak, because you are the one who has no legs, because you are the one who has no arms, with which you could walk after your brethren the gods. Beware of me, and I will beware of you. So uh, there does seem to be some parallel imagery from the Egyptian texts, those pyramid texts, 
uh, which Moses and the Israelites would likely have been aware of as they journeyed out of Egypt. Uh, But regardless of the parallels from those Egyptian texts, what is the significance of these verses? What's going on here? Uh, the, The texts say, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, So, there's lots of questions that we need to ask here, really, in light of this. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on the parallels. I don't understand, really. I don't know the significance. I don't know for for sure, in this case, if, if Moses was making allusions to them and saying anything about the frequent mentions of serpents in the the pyramid text, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. But I do know that there are several main questions that are going to help us understand this text a little bit better. And uh, this first question, for example, is, why did God curse the serpent? I mean, have you ever wondered why why God even said anything to the serpent? God asks Adam what happened, and then he asks Eve what happened. He never asks the serpent what happened. And so, the serpent never gets to give his input. So why did God curse the serpent? Why, why did the serpent, what did the serpent do which deserved being cursed? Well, I mean, the serpent, the serpent never actually lied. He never actually commanded Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge. We don't know if he, the serpent had eaten from the tree of knowledge himself or not. Of course, if he did, the, the command to not eat from the tree wasn't directed towards the serpent anyway. One Jewish scholar points out that the fault of the serpent lies in the mischievous application of the very particular type of wisdom which he had been endowed. This talked about back in Genesis 3.1. And so, through unfinished sentences, this Jewish scholar says, uh, through devious assertions and a dollop of truth, he successfully misrepresented the intent of God and directed the woman toward a course of action with irreversible consequences. In other words, <laughs> uh, summarize that down, the serpent tricked Eve. That's what the serpent did. But again, think about it. Is tricking someone cause enough for God to curse them? I'm not so sure. Frankly, I'm not sure the serpent really did anything wrong. The serpent never lied, never commanded Eve or Adam to break the command of God. Um, And so it sort of seems, from the initial appearance, that God really didn't have any justification for cursing the serpent. So if that's the case, what's going on? Well, the truth is that God did not, in fact, curse the serpent at all. What? (laughs) Doesn't the text say God cursed the serpent? So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any other. Well, that is what our English translations say. Our English translations say that God cursed the serpent. Uh, The thing is, is the Hebrew word there for curse is not actually, it doesn't actually mean the same way, same thing as our English word for cursed. Uh, It's the word arur. And uh, Zionese Zevit, for example, in his commentary on Genesis, points out that this word lacks the range of negative associations attached to the word cursed 
in English. The English word includes the notion of a malevolent power triggered by some supernatural authority that wreaks destruction and vengeance. And that's right. When you think of the word cursed, that's what you think. Some god, or in other contexts, divine being, or even our god, you know, in, in depending on the context, uh, punishes or destroys or causes harm to the object of the curse, the person or item that is being cursed, right? Well, that's what the word means in English, but that is not what the equivalent word means in Hebrew, this word arur. Cursed is a good translation, but the problem is arur in Hebrew doesn't mean what cursed means in English. I hope that makes sense. It doesn't carry this negative connotation exactly. So even though you could translate Aurora as cursed, I don't think it's the best translation. So what is a good translation? Well, to begin with, it's important to note that a very similar word was used in Genesis 3.1 to describe the serpent as crafty. Do you remember looking at that when we were there? The word was arum. All right, so in here the word is arur goes A-R-U-M in Genesis 3.1, A-R-U-R here in Genesis 3.14. So we need to focus on that because what we have here is the serpent in Genesis 3.1 is described as being more crafty than any beast of the field, and now we have the serpent being described as being cursed more than any beast of the field. All right, so uh, clearly there's a parallel. The serpent goes from being a room in Genesis 3.1 to a roar in Genesis 3.14. And the play on words is important to recognize with what is going on here with the serpent. And uh, when further study on this word a is done, we discover that it is typically used in reference to someone who is barred or restricted from enjoying whatever particular good has been designated to them. Uh, They were constrained, held back, handicapped in some way, lessened. And um, so so the reason this restriction or this diminishment occurs is because they brought it up on themselves. Very important concept there. Well, the word curse in English tends to predict some future bad thing that will happen to you because... You know, yeah, you committed some bad actions, but now God is punishing you for it. The Hebrew word arur refers to some sort of present situation, state of being, in which you are weakened or impoverished because of something you yourself did. This is not something God put on you. It is something you brought on yourself. This reminds us of the very important truth from Scripture, that we are punished by our sins not for our sins. God does not punish anybody for their sin. Yes, we are punished for sin, but this punishment does not come from God. It comes from sin itself. Sin is its own punishment. Sin carries its own punishment with it. And that's what we're seeing here with this word arur in this talk, this talking of, of curse in Genesis 3.14. Now again, sin is not mentioned here. I'm not sure the serpent actually sinned, all right? Um, And and sin isn't even mentioned until Genesis 4-7. But the serpent did behave in ways that diminished its standing and position 
among the beasts of the field. It misused the wisdom with which it had been endowed, the wisdom that it had been given by God. It misused it, and because of this misuse, the serpent had been diminished among the beasts of the field. It no longer was the wisest beast of the field. Instead, it was less in the eyes, I suppose you could say, among the standing, it's standing among the beasts of the field. And so I sort of think that that word diminished might be a good way to translate this word aurore. Um, and, and Zion Ezevit suggests that as well. I got that from him. Diminished is a good word, a good way to translate this word aurore. Um, it helps us understand the curse on the land in Genesis 3.17, and also the curse upon Cain in Genesis 4.11. So anyway, to sort of understand more how this diminished works, this diminishment works on the serpent, uh, we look at the rest of verse 14 and 15. There are basically three consequences here that are pronounced, described as this diminishment upon the serpent. We learn that the serpent will crawl on its belly, will eat the dust of the ground, and there will be enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman. So uh, let's take these one at a time. First, on your belly... You shall go. That's what God says to, to the serp, to the serpent. On your belly, you shall go. And first, I don't want you to read this as an idea that at one point the serpent had legs and now it doesn't have legs. You know, this isn't an etiological myth, sort of like how the how the skunk got its stripes. Um, you know, how the serpent lost its legs. No, sometimes Christians read it that way. Martin Luther's a great example. God bless him. He said this. Before the sin, the serpent was the most beautiful little animal and most pleasing to man, as little mules, sheep, and puppies are today. (laughs) Moreover, it walked upright, and so it is due to the curse and not to its nature that it now creeps on the ground. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Martin Luther, but no. I, even if a serpent had legs, I, I do not think most of us would want to cuddle and play with it like a puppy. <laughs> uh, very creative. I like that. But look, I, we don't need to read this statement here, on your belly you shall go, as a statement that it lost its legs. I, I don't think it ever had legs. Um, instead, it's about coming down out of the tree, the tree of knowledge, remember, and now having to crawl on the dust in the ground. Um you might say, yeah, but but Jeremy, lots of serpents still live in trees. Yes, they do, but guess what? Not in the Middle East. There are no tree-dwelling serpents in the Middle East. They all crawl on the dust of the ground in the Middle East. So um, it's just sort of about that. The, the, but but even then, this isn't a myth about how why why tree why serpents don't crawl in trees. It's not about that either. In the beginning of the text in Genesis three, the serpents in the tree with the tree, the tree of wisdom, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now the, the, the serpent's coming down out of that. And the, the symbolism, though, the significance of that, though, is that the serpent has lost wisdom. It was more crafty, more wise than any beast of the field. Now it will not be seen in this way. Typically, when we think of wise animals, we typically think of foxes and owls. I suppose, uh, you know, the, the, the point here is, at one point, maybe it was serpents or something like that. So, Again, that's not the point. The point is a loss of wisdom, a loss of stature, a loss of privilege and position and standing among the animals. The serpent, through its actions, brought shame, derision, and scorn upon himself rather than admiration, reverence, and respect. So that's how to understand this. Uh, On your belly you shall go. 
Next statement in verse 14 is, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Um, The word dust here, same word used in Genesis 2-7 for when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. So that's interesting. Uh, If you you recall, I mentioned uh, back then that the the word here might be better translated as dirt clod. (laughs) It refers to clumps of dirt, not, not finely, you know, loose dust. It's more clumps. Um, and here's the thing, if Genesis 3.14 is an etiological myth, you know, how the skunk got its stripes, why the serpent crawls on the ground sort of a thing, well, it doesn't actually fit because serpents don't eat dirt. Um, you notice that here. Some people have tried to argue that, you know, the serpent crawling on the ground, it's going to get dust in its mouth, and so that's what that's referring to. I think that's a stretch. Other people have said, well, when a serpent, and I didn't know this, When a serpent loses its skin, I guess the serpent begins by rubbing his mouth uh, around his face on a rock or hard stone or something to loosen the skin and uh, make holes in the skin, and that way he is then able to crawl out of it. And so I guess to the casual observer, if you're walking by and see this this serpent rubbing his his face on the rock, you think, oh man, he's trying to eat it. I don't know. Uh, that's that's another argument. Again, I I don't think that 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 this is about trying to figure out why it's eating dirt. Um, I think that what's going on here actually is an ancient idiom for uh, you know figure of speech for remaining silent in the face of discipline and judgment. In Lamentations three twenty eight and twenty nine, for example, Jeremiah writes that. Since Israel rebelled against God and was experiencing the righteous discipline of God, Israel should remain silent and take what is coming to them. And guess what Jeremiah says, how they should do this. The idiom he uses is he says, they should put their mouths in the dust. In other words, they should eat dirt. (laughs) Uh, I think that that phrase helps us understand this phrase. Just as the serpent went from being wise to despised, Right? So also the serpent went from talking in Genesis, the first part of Genesis 3 to silence here. God is saying to the serpent, you know what you did wrong, so don't even argue about it. Take the consequences of your actions in silence. Take what is coming to you. That's what this idea here about eating dirt is all about. And notice the serpent is not invited to share his side of the story, to speak up. Um... As, as both Adam and Eve were. So, finally, um, and, and that's, how I think, best how to understand it. Good advice there, by the way. Don't argue with temptation when it comes. <laughs> uh, just remember what God has said in Scripture. Quote Scripture if you need to. Go to other people for advice. But typically, arguing with temptation just allows us to convince ourselves to fall to the temptation. That's typically what happens. Anyway, We now have verse 15, which is often thought to be the first word of the gospel or the first prophecy of Jesus Christ. And it says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So is this this verse really a prophecy about Jesus? It might be. I know most Christians think that it is. Most most Christians view Genesis 3.15 as the first hint or first promise or first prophecy that God is going to do something about what went wrong in the garden. And uh, that ultimately, of course, is through Jesus Christ. And so 
And then even on the cross, we see the serpent trying to strike Jesus, in a sense. To, that's described here as bruise his heel, but of course, Jesus crushes his head. Jesus defeats sin, death, and uh, the devil on the cross. So, uh, lots of people see this as a prophecy of that event. And look, I, I've read the books, I, I've sat through the sermons, I've even preached a number of sermons on that very topic myself, along those lines. And, you know, part of the point here is a lot of, lots of people point out that a woman doesn't have seed. The seed, of course, comes from the man. And uh, yet here we read that the seed of the woman is described, and people say that is clearly a reference to the virgin birth, you know, through Mary, because no seed was involved there, yet Jesus had to come from somewhere, so this is the seed of the woman. Other people have pointed out the seed is singular, right? Referring to a single descendant rather than to all the multitude of descendants that would come from Eve. And, uh, you know, so what single descendant born of a woman, not a man, was attacked by a serpent of old, yet turned and defeated the serpent by crushing it under his foot? Clearly, this can only be Jesus. Now, I'm not at all arguing with that interpretation. It may very well be true. And as I said, I've preached that sermon before. So, um, the thing is, though, is Genesis 3.15 is never quoted in reference to Jesus in the New Testament. Not exactly. Paul sort of maybe hints at it in Galatians 3.16 when he refers to the seed of Abraham. Um, So, maybe because the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 Uh, I think, is making an allusion back to this prophecy in Genesis 3.15, right? It's in the same book. God says here, there's a seed coming, and then we have all this mention of the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 and Genesis 15, and we're clearly, when God makes these prophecies to Abraham, supposed to be remembering God's statement here in Genesis 3.15. And so in, in Galatians, when... Paul says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. I think that maybe we could make the the jump, the leap, the logical leap back to to Genesis 3.15. That's fine. By the way, if you go look that up in English, it's usually, the word seed there is usually translated as descendants or offsprings, depending on your translation. So uh, it is legitimate, I think, to to see this as a prophecy of Jesus. The thing is, and, and here's the main thing, I do not believe necessarily that the first audience, the original audience, Moses and the Israelites, and especially not Adam and Eve, would have understood this text to be a prophecy about the coming Messiah. The, you know, especially not Jesus. They wouldn't have known it was Jesus, but just this, they didn't have a concept of the Messiah necessarily the way we do today. So, so that's not the way they would have understood the text. And so I'm not sure that we should begin our understanding of the text that way either. If we want to properly understand the text, we need to understand it, begin our understanding with the way they understood it at the time in their context, and do our best to do that. So how was that? How did they understand the text? Well, first of all, remember they would have understood the serpent as a, as a chaos creature. They would not have thought about it as Satan. And having said that, they would have expected that the promised seed, the deliverer, this rescuer, would bring order back to the chaos, would bring them back to a place of peace and tranquility in the garden. And so who originally was thought to do this? Well, we're going to see, as soon as we get into Genesis chapter 4, that Eve thought it would be Cain. She says God has, in Genesis 4, 1, that God has given her a man. Well, 
Who's that? What's she referring to? She's referring back to this promise of God in Genesis 3.15. And then by Cain's actions, we see that he thought so too, that he was going to be the one to overcome the chaos, the problem, get his family back into the Garden of Eden. And of course, then when Cain kills Abel, that sort of upsets everything. And so in Genesis 4.25... Eve is given another son, Seth, and she says, God has given me another seed. Anyway, it's all very interesting. Uh, Adam and Eve thought that their sons, their children, were this seed, this promised and prophesied seed, their own children. So um, that's going to help us understand the text moving forward. Uh, it, It is eventually a prophecy of Jesus, but not initially. I don't think that's the way they initially would have understood it. Second, it's helpful to understand that um, regarding the actions of the serpent toward the seed and the seed towards the serpent, this this crushing and striking and bruising, depending on how your translation reads, um, the word used here for crush or strike or bruise is the exact, both, both words are the exact same in, in the Hebrew. I like the, in the New King James, it tries to show this, it uses the word bruise twice in the text. Other translations have strike and crush or something, you know, different words, but giving the impression that there's different words in Hebrew, but there isn't. It's only one word. It's the same word in both cases. Whatever the action is of the serpent toward the seed, this is also the same identical action of the seed toward the serpent. So um, there's a lot of speculation then on on what this action means. Probably the best translation is, is bruise or press Uh, something like that, it doesn't necessarily refer to killing. Um, Maybe not even so much to bloodshed so much. So so what does the word mean? And and there's lots of speculation on this. Again, I don't want to move forward into the, the prophecies about the text. I think the best explanation points to an ancient Mesopotamian practice in which a person who was unjustly accused by someone else was allowed to strike the accuser on the head when they were found out as innocent. All right, so, so if someone accused you of wrongdoing, and you lived way, way, way back in the days of Moses and Israel, and the two of you went before the elders or leaders of your town to decide the matter, and it was discovered that you were not guilty of what you had been accused of, you were in fact innocent of any wrongdoing, one of the things you were allowed to do was go over <laughs> and smack your accuser on the head with your hand as a way of indicating that he had falsely accused you. So I think that helps us understand what's going on here. This means that when the serpent tries to strike the heel of the seed, uh, that is an accusation of wrongdoing, trying to usurp, overtake the position and standing of the woman's seed. It's usually what happens when you accuse someone. You're trying to elevate yourself and diminish them. But when the seed is found to be innocent of any wrongdoing that he's been accused of, then he will strike the head of the serpent, his accuser. And I like this understanding because it better explains why the conflict between the serpent and the seed is described as enmity. I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Uh, It also helps identify the serpent as the accuser, the one who accuses. Later scripture, of course, uh, tells us this is Satan. In fact, Satan, Hasatan in Hebrew, means accuser. He's the accuser. So I, I like that that uh, is brought out here. The spirit of Satan is the, the spirit of the accuser. 
And of course, ultimately, finally, this does get us to Jesus because Jesus is accused of wrongdoing, but he is found to be innocent of all wrongdoing. And, and so also, in Jesus, for us, there is no more condemnation or accusation that can be leveled against us either. Best of all, bringing us back full circle, this means there is no curse leveled at us as well. We've seen today, we've begun to see today anyway, that God does not curse. He doesn't curse the serpent. It's not here. He says, serpent, because of what you've done, you are diminished more than all the beasts of the field. That's what this means. God isn't cursing the serpent. He's describing to the serpent what has happened to him, what the consequences are of what he has done. He was wise and more crafty than any beast of the field, but now because of what he has done, he is more diminished than any beast of the field. Later, we're going to see that he, that God, does not curse Adam and Eve either. He doesn't curse the serpent. He's not going to curse Adam and Eve either. All right? God does not pronounce curses on people. What God does do is warn us and tell us what the negative consequences of our decisions will be. But God himself does not curse. We're going to see a lot more of this going forward. Today was sort of a little more than an introduction to Genesis 3, 16 through 19, just talking about cursing and what's going on with the serpent between the serpent and the woman and the serpent and the seed and all this. But just as we close out, I just want you to know there is no curse leveled against you. All right? I hope this is an encouraging truth. Some people, lots of Christians go around thinking... I get emails almost every day because of my book on the unpardonable sin. People think God has cursed them. You know, they cursed God or they said something about God or they they did something. Maybe some people think it's because of adultery or divorce or something and they feel that God has cursed them as a result. And it's very damaging for a person to think that God has cursed them. If you've ever felt that you know how horrible, how, what sort, sort of life you live if you think that God has cursed you and forsaken you and abandoned you and hates you because of something you've done. Listen, God does not curse. He does not curse people. What God does do is when we sin, when we stray, when we rebel, when we disobey him, he comes alongside us and sort of puts his arm around our shoulders and says, oh, you know, I warned you against this because this is going to hurt you. I'm not sending the pain on you. I'm not punishing you, but I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen as a result. Now, I want to walk through you with this pain. I want to do what I can to protect you from the pain. And we'll get through it. You and I, we'll get through this together. I'm going to walk through. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. But I want to tell you right now, here's what's going to happen. I'll, I'll be with you through this. But here are the consequences that will come. And I want to help you through it. So if you're experiencing difficulty and pain and hardship and trials in life, know that these are not sent to you by God. God is not punishing you. You're probably experiencing some consequences of sin in your life. It might be your own sin. It might be the sin of other people. That's the horrible thing about sin. Sometimes it has consequences on other people as well. Innocent bystanders often get hurt. You might be experiencing some of that. But know that no matter what, God has not abandoned you. He has not cursed you. He is not punishing you. He is not out to get you for your sin, make you pay. That is not what God does. He comes to end the pain. He does not send the pain. And that's the truth we're going to see is next time when we 
Look at what God says to the woman in Genesis 3, 16, and then later when we see what God says to the man in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. I hope you you join me for those studies as well as we study our way through the rest of Genesis 3. And also, by the way, this is the truth you also see in Romans chapter 9 from my book, The Rejustification of God. Uh, Go get a book, go get a copy of it on Amazon for only 99 cents. God doesn't curse Pharaoh. People say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, cursed him to everlasting punishment. You know, that is not what is going on. That God cursed and hated Esau, sent him to everlasting hell. No, that is not what's going on there. Get a copy of this book on Amazon for only 99 cents this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time as we pick back up in Genesis 3, 17.